Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. How are we doing? How was your week? I am on the tail end of some sort of cold or something, so bear with me if I have to blow my nose in the middle, just the way it is. That's how we're going to do it. Uh, we are continuing our wonderful journey through Matthew, so if you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 17. Last week, as Adam alluded to, uh, although I, I did not purposely do this, make us suffer, but uh, with the HVAC, but uh, we talked about how following Jesus is synonymous with suffering, that it's, it's basically a prerequisite. It's not the most uh, uplifting message sometimes, but it's the most real thing that we can understand and understand about the heart of Jesus. And so today as we continue, one of the really cool things about going through a book of the Bible like this and at the pace we are is that we kind of start to see everything build upon each other. It's like um, building blocks, like a mosaic, where you start to see all these different pieces, and it, it tells a greater story. And um, if you remember, we've you've used maps a lot. Uh, we we love maps at Contrast Church. Uh, we talked about like Jesus' historical and physical journey, and how he is he is finally he's been going all throughout the region of Galilee and miracles and all this type of stuff, right? But now he's 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 having his final descent, if you will, like from north to south, even from uh, uh, Philippi, Caesarea to Jerusalem, where he won't come back out of the city. He'll be crucified. Uh, in Jerusalem. And so as he starts this journey, he's not just like doing it physically, but we know as we follow and track with Matthew who compiles this account that, that there's, there's, start, there's things that we start to see in a trajectory of who Jesus is physically while he's moving down there, but also just as, as we see like who Jesus truly is. And uh, that's why last week Jesus was like, hey, who do people say that I am? Like, and they're like, well, a uh, prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist, right? They're all wrong. And then he's like, who do you say I am? And they're like, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the liberator of us. But even though they said that, which they were right, they were very wrong about the implications of that, which is why Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to be killed and tortured and all that in Jerusalem. And Peter's like, takes him aside. And he's like, stop your negative talking, right? You're being a negative Nancy. It's not going to happen. And then Jesus rebukes him. It's a great scene. But even though they knew he's going to be the Messiah, right, as they're heading down here, they're still needing to reframe what does that mean in light of what Jesus is saying, right? What is it, like, we can have our own vision of a Messiah, but if we don't really take it on Jesus' terms, we're just creating our own Messiah in our head. And so today is this really unique, I would say provocative passage. It's called the Transfiguration. Maybe you've read of it. It's in three of the four gospel accounts, so it's a pretty well-known story. And it is just weird. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, if you read it with like an American, Western, modern, postmodern lens, it doesn't really like hit you hard. It's just like, this is interesting and weird and okay, let's just keep moving on, right? It's the same way when we like read about miracles and healings and things. We're like, that's really cool. And I don't see those every day in my real life, like in my life day to day, but I know they happened. But this one's just even more bizarre. Because this man just transfigures and it, it's weird. But what's really important about this passage and what we have to remember is Matthew is not necessarily writing to us specifically. He is writing to Jewish listeners who have had hundreds if not thousands of years of Jewish history that was awaiting this Messiah. And so as we read the transfiguration, I'm going to use some language that is helpful for you to kind of absorb a first century Jewish mind. Because 
21st century American mind has a hard time understanding the weight of this passage. We read it as like it's just another, another passage, but it has a lot of weight to it. And so as you were, if you're in your Bibles, right, like in your phones in Matthew 17, I actually want you to just kind of have your eyes there. I'm going to read a passage in the Old Testament in Exodus 24. And I just want you to kind of see if you can notice some similarities in the passage you have on your phone compared to what I'm going to read in the Old Testament. This is in uh, Exodus 24. I'll start in verse 15. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai, and the uh, cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called Moses from within the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. Moses went into the cloud when he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now if you look in your passage, you'll see a lot of similarities. Uh, you'll see, huh, there's six days in both of those. There is uh, a small group of people in, in the story that we're reading today. There's Peter, James, and John, right? So not all the disciples, just the inner circle. And it, with Moses, there's like the kind of higher up elders of the whole tribe. I mean, there's thousands of Israelites, and so only a few of them get to go. They're also on a mountain, and there's this glory of the Lord cloud type of manifestation. And so they have a lot of similarities. What's unique about Moses's uh, experience is that he was going up on the mountain to meet with the Lord and to receive what we know as like the Ten Commandments, right? The tablets that had the laws written on them that then told the people of Israel how to, how to live among the God of Yahweh, Yahweh the God the Father. And, and, uh, and if you're a Jewish listener, right, you like know all of this. This is your life. Like this is, you're still following the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and Moses is up here on this mountain for several days and it's fascinating when he comes back down, his face is like shining. <laughs> it's kind of like showing that Jesus, or Moses, when he was with God, that God's presence was so bright that his face like kept shining from it. And, and we have these two stories. Now, if you're a Jewish listener and you're listening to this account, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like Moses, right? And then you start reading more and you realize, and we'll get into it, that Moses is there and Elijah's there in this transfiguration. So there's something even greater going on here. But what Jesus is doing with these disciples is on his way down to Jerusalem, there's potentially two different mountains that he could be on, either Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. Uh, I'm not going to get into why. It could be one or the other. But they're on a high mountain. And I, I love how Jesus and even Moses like, had met with God on a mountain. I don't know. Anybody, anybody like, love mountains here? Anybody climb? Anybody in the 14er club climb 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado or anything? You're like, what is that? 14,000-foot mountain or taller. Um, but I lived in Tucson for several years, and it was the desert, but it was surrounded by a mountain range, by like on the north side, that went from 2,000 to 9,000 feet, which is significant. And it had a highway as very windy, very narrowly, like one road, up to the top. But it was so great. You could get up there in 35, 40 minutes, and you went through basically like four, uh, I don't know what you call them, like biospheres like of nature and life. So you'd start off with like desert and cactus, and like everything wants to kill you and it's poisonous. And then you go up another couple thousand feet and then it's like Ohio and there's like deciduous trees and they're in the fall, the leaves fall and there's grass and rabbits and, and stuff like that. And then you get up to like five, 6,000 feet and it becomes low alpine where there's like a lot of pine trees and there's still some deciduous, but it's different. There's aspens and, and then you get up to the top and it's 9,000 and everything around you is just like pine trees. And it's fascinating. And, and, in, the, this, and in the winter in Tucson, it could be 60 degrees 
but up on the mountains, it was 30, and it was snowing. It was, it was a really cool, like you were seeing these different layers. But I think what's significant, because I'm like, well, you know, why, did, why didn't you have to go up to a mountain? It's not like, I mean, God can meet. It's not like God's like, oh, you're on a mountain, you're closer than me. I'm up here, and you're like closer. So you're, I, he didn't have to do that. But I think there's significance about a mountain. Jesus oftentimes will like, go up on a mountain to pray. Moses goes up on a mountain. There's something significant about a mountain. And I think about it in our own life just practically, like describing mountaintop experiences, right? There's, we have this clarity, this vantage point, this moment where we can just kind of see very clearly, right? And I, I remember teaching on this passage several years ago at uh, the church I was at in Tucson. And I had talked about how I feel like in, in, in our faith journey, we have mountaintop experiences. We have like these significant moments where, uh, for lack of better words, Jesus kind of takes you up on the mountain and just shows you his, his glory or like his plan for you. And that could be through um, this like spiritual experience or this dream or this healing or just this freedom that you felt over like, oppression, right? Like some sort of thing, right? Maybe you have felt that. Maybe you've had moments of that or maybe you haven't. But there's these formative moments in our faith journey that are like mountaintops where we, we latch on to them as a significant pillar in our journey, but then most of our life is not on the mountain. It's, right, like, there's probably two or three scenes this whole book that they're on a mountain. The rest of it's in the, the, the plateau or the, the down low in the valleys, and they have to live life in that, in the midst of that. But this moment and this story is a mountaintop experience. And it says this in verse 2. It says that, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The whole passage obviously centers around this word transfigured. Uh, it's the Greek term, it's one in English, is metamorpho, which is where we get metamorphis, which is described the complete change of a form and substance. So uh, raise your hand if you've ever been to the Franklin Park Conservatory. Do you know what that is? Okay. We love it. If you haven't gone, come with me. We're members. We love it. It's amazing. In the spring, it's the, the coolest thing they do. They have this whole display of like hundreds of species of caterpillar butterflies. And they're all like in their cocoons. And any day you go, they're like hatching random times because they're all different species, so they hatch different times. And then they just like release them into one of the uh, conservatory rooms. And so you can just walk around in this beautiful like plant jungle with butterflies everywhere. It's the coolest thing. But they're all so different, right? Different sizes, different colors. All, all the caterpillars are like the cocoons and stuff are different and things like that. But really, th this is the same word we're using. And, and it's, it's honestly very hard to understand. And I think the reason why, I, like I said, when I read this passage, I'm like, eh, is because we don't really like, we can't, we weren't there. Like we don't understand it. We try to visualize it and be like, wow, he's really bright. Like if I stare at the sun too long, right? What was, isn't there like a day where the sun was like extra bright or something? Do you guys remember that? And it was like you couldn't stare at it or it would like really hurt you or something. It feels like that. You're just like, oh, Jesus was just like this really bright light that you couldn't look at. And that's kind of all we can experience, right? Because we weren't there. There wasn't this, like, the reality. We just try to figure it, figure it out via and our paintings of it. Look at these paintings are, are just as best we can do. This is a painting um, several hundred years ago, and, like, this is, like, their attempt at it. And it's just not very good. <laughs> he just, it doesn't even look like Jesus, but... Uh, you can see, like, you know, Elijah and Moses and God the Father up there. And then Jesus is, like, standing. Like, he's, like, the size of the mountain, which is funny. They were not very good at scale back then. But, and then I don't know if that's James or John. And he's just, like, it's so bright, you know. Uh, this next one is the most famous one. This is by Raphael. This is, like, the most well-known painting of the Transfiguration. 
And uh, it's a little bit better, you know, there's some clouds and I mean, they're like weirdly floating, which is just like, I don't know, I don't know, like, it's just weird that they're floating, but whatever. And uh, I just, they still have them being like, oh my gosh, my eyes, you know. Um, and, and then this is, this is actually my favorite one, is the last one, because I think it's the most accurate. <laughs> it's not trying to put too much into what it is. Um, this, one of the scholars that I've been using throughout the book of Matthew, he writes one of the, one of the world's best commentaries on Matthew. His name is R.T. France. And he, say, he tries to describe the transfiguration. He says this. He says, the visual transformation is not so much a physical alteration, um, but it's an added dimension of glory, which you're like, dimensions. So like, think about it like when you put 3D glasses on and like it like comes alive. Or if you've watched, um, uh, what is the movie where it like adds another dimension? Interstellar? Interstellar? Where it's like 4D and it's like, I don't even really understand. I've watched it like four times. I still don't get it. But it's like this fourth dimension, right? Kind of. And it's like, you didn't really see it. It was there all along. And it's, it, he's like, it's, it's more like that. He says, it's the same Jesus, but now with an awesome brightness like the sun or like light, one might better say this. It's, it was with the dullness of earthly conditions temporarily stripped away so that the true nature of God's beloved son can once be seen. And I think that what we're dealing with here is, is up until this point, the Jewish listeners had been thinking, this is a man a human being who's a really great teacher, but is he really God, right? Because that's provocative. Like, nobody had claimed to be God before them. It was Yahweh, and that was it. One true God, number, first commandment, love the Lord your God, right? It's like, there, there's one God, right? So the first thing this story is doing is it is starting to dismantle a Jewish understanding of, like, Jesus is not just Gandhi, you know? He's not just like a, a really cool sage rabbi with great wisdom that walks around, but he is far more than that. Now, he is human, right? But he's also God. And what, what's, what's provocative about this even today is there's a lot of religions that use Jesus in their beliefs, but they don't subscribe him to be God. Or if he is, he's son of God, meaning he's not equal to God the Father. He's just kind of God's son, and he's submissive to him, and he's his own separate thing, right? And so there's still a lot of beliefs today that are centered around this incorrect understanding of God. And what's, what's interesting is even whenever we talk about it today with like agnostic and atheist people, a lot of them would say, really, if you've done your reading, nobody would deny that Jesus wasn't a, a historical figure, meaning that you can find research anywhere of any article that would say Jesus lived, like he was a human being. The difficulty is, do you believe he's divine, meaning he, he was more than just a human who the Romans crucified, and did he really resurrect, or did his disciples steal the body, whatever, right? That's more the argument. But in this passage, what, what, God, what God is, is revealing to us, to the Jewish listener, is, look, he's not just a man. He's far more than that. And even today, we're still like, yeah, but like, what does that mean, right? If you've ever tried to like, read about the Trinity, which you're like, that in itself is very confusing. God is not three gods, but he's God, but he's not three modes of God. You know, and then you try to use all these metaphors. And then you're like, wait, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, so where do we come up with this? And then you have to read these big, thick books, and you're just like, I'm just going to forget it. I just, they're all good. It's good, right? Honestly, I feel that way, and I've like studied them for, I said, the Trinity for years. And we get to this point, but, but what's beautiful here and what we have to really notice is this is reminding us of this beauty of the Trinity of God, that the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit they all have these unique moments in the, in the text where they, they kind of are dancing together. 
If you remember back to Matthew 3 or 4, when Jesus baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit's present, like a, a dove came on him and he gets baptized, and then God the Father is through the clouds. Similarly, he's like, this is my son, who I'm well pleased with, right? And so we see this, this play here, but the first part of this is, if you're a Jewish listener, okay, Jesus is clearly more than a man because he transfigures, he, he ascends a, a, a physical dimension into this like, just remarkable scene. Now, what's more confusing to us, we're like, okay, transfigured, he was really bright, right? We still have a hard time understanding it, is there's Moses and Elijah there as well, which is bizarre, didn't happen in, with his baptism, why are they here now? And this is where you got to be a Jewish listener because you got to understand the background here. Um, in Luke's account, he says that they're all talking. So Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses about, specifically it says, his departure that he said he would carry out in Jerusalem. So he's talking about his impending trip. And I don't know if Elijah and Moses are like, no way, man, that's crazy. Or they're like, you can do it. We believe in you. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't say. They're like, if they're encouraging him. Or, but that's what they're talking about. And Moses and Elijah are like these just like spiritual just juggernauts of the faith of, of the Jewish people. Moses, like I said, was the lawgiver. He was like the ultimate rabbi, right? They, they were still following all of his teachings and laws and the way in which he, would let, he led the Israelites. Elijah was, if you read about him, his story is crazy. He's this like wild prophet who didn't even see death. He like ascended into heaven, right? So he like cheated death like Enoch as well. Uh, and so both of them have these massive implications on a Jewish understanding of the Messiah in light of them today, or like in this, this time. Moses, for instance, in Deuteronomy said this thing. He said, the Lord your God, Yahweh, will raise up for you a prophet like me, he's saying himself, from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. And then Elijah is talked about in the last verses of the Old Testament. So if you're in your Bible and like you're in Matthew, you flip to the left. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, and these are the last words in Malachi. It says, remember the laws of my servant Moses, okay, to whom at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, I gave rules and regulations for all Israel to obey. Look, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord arise, and he will encourage fathers and their children to return to me so that I will not come and strike the earth with judgment. Both of these men have been up on Mount Sinai. Both of them have been with God. Both of them had this, this ambiguous future prophetic purpose. So if you're a Jewish listener, your understanding of the Messiah is like, Elijah is going to come back, right? He didn't die, so he's probably just chilling up in heaven. Maybe heaven's timeless, so he'll come back and look exactly like what we thought he would look like, right? Or he's like, I'm 1,200 years old. You know, they don't know. They're like, they're kind of speculating, they're praying for Elijah because when Elijah comes, then it will set in motion everything that they thought to become of the Messiah, right? Elijah will come and he'll start, you know, providing the teachings and the understandings that we knew and then someone will rise up that's the Messiah that will just destroy the Rome and then we'll be able to be fully Israel and follow Yahweh without any sort of religious persecution or anything like that, right? And, and, and what God is doing here, and this is why it's provocative to a Jewish listener, is they realize, oh, wow, Moses is there, Elijah's there, and Jesus is there, but God, as you'll see in a second, only like, speaks about Jesus. And at the end of it, both Moses and Elijah disappear, and Jesus is still left in front of us. And so as a Jewish listener, you're realizing, okay, Moses, yeah, that's important. Elijah, also really important. Wait, Jesus, is he, is he who I think he is? Is he the fulfillment of Moses' teaching and, 
and Elijah and the prophecy in Malachi, is he truly that man? And the main reason why this is so provocative is because like, it, it wasn't Elijah who was Elijah. If you read the, verse 13 at the end of the story, I'm, I'm cheating to the end, but Jesus gives away Elijah, the, the new Elijah that was to come was John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is fulfilling the rule of Elijah. Now, it's not like Elijah 2.0. Like, it's not like Elijah with a mustache. He's like, I'm John the Baptist, you know? It was like John, it was Jesus' cousin. But they missed it, right? They wanted to be a certain way. They, they couldn't wrap their minds around, this is truly the Elijah, and then this is what the Messiah looks like, because Jesus was far different than anything they would expect. And so they both disappear. And, and so that's kind of what's happening. They're in this transfiguration, right? Can you see how many like levels of kind of of, of uh, teaching that is being undone and, and affirmed and fulfilled if you're a Jewish? What I love is like th- there's this going on, and then there's like the three disciples who are like a part of this that are like kind of living their own life. In verse four, Peter's like seeing this and Jesus is transfigured, and he's like, Lord, it's good that we're here. He's like, This is so awesome. Wow. If you want, I will make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I just like, I mean, you read it, and you're like, gosh, Peter. In fact, God literally cuts him off the next verse. It says while he was still speaking, God like basically cuts him off. He's like, Peter, shut up. Because Peter is just like, this is great. Let's prolong this. We're on a mountain. It's sunny. Let's build some shelters so you can stay here a while, right? And, and, and we can kind of like bask in this situation, right? It'd be like if you met three celebrities and they were, they were like at a restaurant and you were there and you'd be like, let me buy you dessert and I'll chat with you for 10 more minutes, right? Like, let me keep you here. I want to keep this going. And Peter obviously is far more concerned about like his own identity in light of this, right? He's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to help him out. I want to prolong this. I want to be helpful in this. And God just like basically is like, no. And he cuts him off. In verse five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, and it sounds familiar. This is my one dear son in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. Now, remember that God the Father said the exact same thing to him when he was baptized, except for the phrase, listen to him, which is interesting. We should probably take note of that, right? Okay, listen to him. Why is he saying it like that? And we have to realize that there's Moses and there's Elijah and they weren't sure, you know, is this really the Messiah? Is this really God? And, and, and at the end of the day, God is saying, no, no, this is him. And I proved it through this miraculous, miraculous transfiguration. And you're still not really getting it. And what's, what's fascinating for us is I think there's so many times in our own faith, in our own life, where we're like Peter, where we're like, God is just saying, shut up and listen. And just be, just observe, right, what's going on. And you're like, I'm going to like, prolong this moment, or I'm going to make it better, or I'm going to like force my own will upon this situation. I'm going to, I'm going to contribute, right? And God's just like, just stop and listen. Now, listening to him is, is a very broad phrase, because is it like listen to all his teachings? Is it listen to him in this moment? Is it listen to what's going on now? Is it listen, you know, that he is the Messiah? I think that's probably the main point, and it's a lot of those things. But God the Father, I mean, think about it. You can have a more severe rebuke than God the Father while Jesus is there being like, listen. And in Peter and the disciples' moment, they are like terrified. Right? We see that uh, they were in fear and awe. And some translations say like reverence and trembling. And 
They're just like, oh my gosh. And I think for us, when we like read this, like I said, the transfiguration is this like, okay, Jesus got really bright and it's cool. But like there is a there is a a massive weight to this situation. And what it's all that you can do is just be like in awe and wonder about who God is and his authority. And up until this point, they had thought Jesus is this really great teacher. He clearly has spiritual powers, but now he's saying he's going to go be killed, which doesn't make sense if he's going to be the Messiah. And then they see this, and they're like, oh my gosh, like he is truly it. So the first thing we talked about is Jesus is this great teacher. The second thing is through Moses and Elijah, we see that Jesus is, is, is truly, he's fulfilling the Jewish understanding of the Messianic role. Like he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling Moses' assumptions of him and prophecy. He's fulfilling Elijah and John the Baptist and Jesus coming. He's fulfilling all of that. And so the Jewish mind, you're like, okay, okay. And, he, and then he transfigures. And so he, he, uh, he transcends just the human reality. He's not just a man. He's a God-man, right? And there's far more weight to that. And then God the Father affirms it. I mean, like, you know, this is Yahweh to them. This is my dear son. Listen, like, what he says is true and right. Listen to him. And so the third part is, is if you're a Jewish listener, that you take away is the God, that God the Father's voice affirms Jesus' sonship, that he is the son of God, and his mission to being the Messiah. If you remember last week, like, Jesus' main goal was, hey, if you want to join in on my sufferings, like, that's how you follow me, but, like, I'm going to go suffer. I am the suffering servant for you. And, and so we learned these three things, and like I said, if you're a Jewish listener, these are incredibly powerful. To us, we're like, kind of at the end of the story, cool tray, nice history lesson, right? But I love the, I love the response, because, I mean, the disciples are Jewish. Like, they had these probably same presuppositions about the Messiah. And I love the scene that they come back down the mountain in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them. He said, hey, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And long story short, he just wanted them to have this moment. It would be hard to describe until they saw everything fulfilled. He's like, hey, don't talk about it until then. Then the disciples asked him, why then do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? So what they're thinking is, okay, you're the Messiah. There was Elijah, but like he hasn't been here yet, right? And that's what the Pharisees are arguing, right? Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Elijah hasn't been here yet. Or we haven't seen him, or, right? That's like one of the defenses. And Jesus says, Elijah does come first, and he will restore all things. I tell you, Elijah has already come, yet they did not recognize him. So Elijah's already come. Okay, the Pharisees don't recognize him, but did whatever they wanted to him, and in the same way, the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. And then in verse 13, like I said, he gives it away. Then the disciples understood. He was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, hey, you missed Elijah, basically is what he's saying. And I, I think about this just from like, you know, they're, they're Jewish and I kind of get to read their perspective of kind of being a little bit biased because I'm not Jewish and didn't have that steeped in my life, right? But I mean, I just think of how often like we completely misinterpret Jesus or miss him or miss what he's trying to do in our lives, even today. And how our, our culture and our upbringing dictates the, the lens that we're able to see where Jesus is and what he looks like and what he's doing. And it was no different at this time. that These Pharisees, these leaders thought, because Nicodemus was like, he was like, Pharisee, and he was like, maybe this is the Messiah, right? And there's, there's, you see these glimpses of religious leaders being like, maybe it is, you know? Even later, Caiaphas' wife has a dream, like, you know? So it's not like they're just like, can't be it. 
But what's happening is the intellectual battle that's occurring, which is, is he fulfilling the prophecies? Is he what we believe to be the Messiah and the things he would do? Was getting bumpy because they didn't want a Messiah that conflicted with their life. That conflicted with their beliefs and their values. And so their foundation was not what they thought it was. They thought it was God and following his law. It was their hearts. It was their own selves. It was their own status and their own pride. And the external appeared to be that of God and what he wanted, but it wasn't. And we see this because the disciples do the exact same thing. They're coming back down off this mountain. Imagine if you went to this event on Friday and you saw like 10 people that were on wheel- in wheelchairs just healed. Like we just praying in the spirit and they just stood up and walked around. You know, blind people were seeing. And you're like, this is crazy. And, and then the next day you're like, yeah, but like, I don't know. Or maybe they were like, maybe they could walk the whole time. They just were sitting in a wheelchair. It was a game, you know. Like, you know how like we can quickly just like question it. You see a video and you're like, yeah, I don't know if it's really real. And I don't really know if, or if it was, like, was it God or, you know, what was it? Or, right? And, and we started to play that game, right? We see something. We see a powerful thing. We start to play this game. Is it really real? We start to rationalize. Does this fit into my thinking, my, you know, my reasoning, my way of life, right? And they're doing the exact same thing. They're like, wait, but like, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Is Jesus not... He's not fulfilling that. And I, just, I think there's so much for us that we can internalize in this passage from the disciples' perspective is, is in our lives, do we have these things that Jesus is communicating to us and through us that we're just like, I don't like the way it fits in my life. Or maybe we've, we've clung on so deeply to the mountaintop experience that, that we don't allow it to seep into our normal everyday life. One of the best ways I can describe this is when I was a student pastor we would go to camp, you know, like summer camp uh, and winter camp, and, and you'd have these, like, five-day, no sleep, f- hours of worship and really good, like, teachings and people, and all these students would, like, just give their lives to Jesus, right? And they're like, yes, you know, I'm going to go home, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, like, get accountability, and I'm going to, like, stop hanging out with this person. I'm going to break up with this person. They're no good, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reconcile with my father, right? Like, all these, like, things. And then all of a sudden, they get on the bus, <laughs> and... Uh, by the time you get home, they're like, hey, like, I'm back together with my girlfriend. And you're like, no, what happened, right? Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been on like, the recipient end. Maybe you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I have seen it firsthand. It's literally the best way I can describe it. If you haven't seen the show, I'm sorry. But it's like the show Severance, where basically uh, the, main, the main character works in this company, where when he goes down this elevator to his job, his brain only has, he has like a work brain and like a normal life brain. And they do not have any overlap. So like he goes and he goes in normal life and nothing that happens there affects necessarily his work. But then when he's done working, he's like back into his work life. It's like that. It's like they get on this bus and they're like, Jesus, Jesus. And they come home and they're like, well, I don't know how this fits in my life. I don't know if I really want to give that up anymore. I don't know if I really believe this. I felt this thing and now I don't. Or I still kind of feel this thing, but I don't know how to reconcile it. Right? There's all these external pressures. And they're no different. The disciples are no different, right? They have this, this insane moment. If any of us were there, we would have been the exact same. We would have been on our hands and knees, just like, wow, speechless. Unless we're like Peter, and we're like, let me help you build some shade structures. But what, what's going on here, and what we have to remind ourselves, is that th- this is like the narrative of faith. Is that there's these experiences we have and they don't last forever. This is like the only one that, that three of them get. Right? The other nine don't get this. They don't even hear about it until after everything happens. But what we do know is that from this point on, these disciples never question his messiahship anymore. 
They never question, is he really the one? They just they know it. They believe it. They've seen it. They know that he's fully God, fully man. Now, do they like still blather around? Absolutely, right? Like we know Peter. They, actually, all three of these disciples, other than John, who's kind of there, they all abandon him when he's getting crucified because they don't want to get killed, right? They all run away. So we know they're far from perfect. But they're, the, this mountaintop experience that they had was propelling them into this faith that was being cultivated in just the normal valley, the normal plateau of life. And so for us, when we read this and what we kind of take away from it is it's less about us reading it and being like, wow. Because we're just, I mean, it'd be really cool if you had this experience in your life. But like most of us, I would say, are not going to have a transfiguration of Jesus in front of us. But here we are. And, and we've had, some of us have had these experiences. Like for me, I remember in college that I had um, kind of part of my coming to faith conversion. I grew up a Christian, but was very like pharisaical and it wasn't really in my heart, right? And I went to this event and long story short, I, I, I felt like this immense weight and freedom lifted off me in a lot of areas and sin patterns that I had been dealing with, like pornography and just pride and just like hate and a lot of things. And I tell this story, I've told it a hundred times. Every time I tell it, it just sounds like flat. It's like, everyone's like, wow, that's really cool. And, but they like don't get it. You know what I mean? I don't even like, it's, it was what, I don't know, nine, ten years ago. I don't even like remember exactly how it felt, but I knew that it was not in this world. You know what I'm saying? And I think about that and I cling to that in a lot of ways because it's part of my conversion story. It's a way that I really radically met Jesus in like a real way for me. But it happened 10 years ago. And if I'm just trying to relive every day of my life like that, I'm missing a lot of what Jesus says. Because Jesus' line as they're getting off the mountain is, they didn't recognize Elijah or John the Baptist. And in the same way, the Son of Man will suffer as well. Like, hey, I am this glorified, beautiful, all authority, worship, praise given to me. I'm God. I'm God but I'm going to go back down this mountain and I'm going to walk the human path through suffering and pain and difficulty and agony. So I just, for us, we take this way, I think of just, we, I think we pray for, we yearn for, we're thankful for small glimpses where we felt Jesus in this way that's like just undescribable. And it, it transcends physical dimensions, right? It, it transcends what we know to be, like, feel like true, right? But we're still human and we still walk down off the mountain and we still have questions and we still deal with the everyday Part of life. And so I think this is just a reminder. It's a, it's a catalyst for us as we continue the journey of Matthew is there's these small moments and doses that we get where we see Jesus for not just this suffering servant, not just this man, but God who deserves all of our worship and all of our praise. Right? Like when we sing songs and Jesus, we love you, right? And we, like, we want to give you all of our affection, all of our devotion, right? All of that, that even sometimes when we have a hard time fully believing it or we have these struggles or we have these doubts that it it is a reminder and it's a, a refilling of like this is who we worship and we follow. And as I close and I invite Nick up, um, I love this quote. I used it the last time I taught on this passage in Mark. And I think it still just fits so well. Because there's the, the application of this passage. If, you have, if you're writing a bullet list, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> there's not five ways, five practical ways to, to own the transfiguration this week. Um, because it's not really about that, right? The disciples, the three disciples, experienced a, a reality that shaped a lot of their formation as they kept going. But they didn't get another transfiguration moment. And most of the disciples didn't get any. 
But what we, what we realize is that we, we see this and we respond to it as a call to just to worship. Like, how have I not been just giving my whole heart to worship and to just acknowledging that Jesus is not just my friend who's a man, but he is God. He is Lord and he is worthy of praise. And A.W. Tozer says this quote. He says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. And the reason why I just love this quote is it frames the point of this story is that it is to bring our hearts and our minds and our thoughts back to Jesus and who he truly is. He is truly God. He is truly divine. He is truly the suffering servant who did not, like he wasn't just God up in the clouds because God the Father is like, I'm up here and here's my son that I sent for you and he's God and he's going to suffer but that he is worthy of all of our praise. I love that that in this moment, this transfiguration moment, it says that they were in awe and, and fear and some, like I said, some say trembling and reverence. They're just like on their faces, like in the painting, right? They're like, oh my gosh. And Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid, right? Don't be afraid. I just, I love that idea of just like, we have the ability to worship God through song, and there's many other ways to worship God, but through song where we can sing about the goodness of God and that and that even though he's the most powerful being, right, that he can be like, hey, I'm, I'm here, don't be afraid, and just basically just ascribe, ascribe worship to me or to give worship to me. And so as we close in our time of reflection, um, we always have uh, the uh, bread in the cup that we offer as just a reminder of this sacrifice. Um, and so if you follow Jesus, you can partake in that. But we're also going to have just a time of reflection. We have people in the back who'd love to pray for you. But I think what, what is tracking through our minds is we just sit in this. We sit in the passage. We let it uh, kind of eat us in some ways. Like we eat the scripture. We let it sit. Is that we remind ourselves, like, is, do we believe God is truly worthy of worship? Do we truly believe in what he has done in his sacrifice, not just as a human, but as God? And, and I think for you, I hope that you become introspective about how is your mountaintop experiences shaped where you're at now and, and what does that mean in light of where you're moving forward. So I'd encourage you to just process through that. And then we're going to invite the band up and we'll sing one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.